welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress, and ideally, a lot more fulfillment. On today's episodes, we're talking decision-making. We're asking ourselves, what's the best way to make complex decisions? I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. I'm back! Darlene! You're back. Thank goodness. It was so weird not podcasting last week. Really odd. Missed it. How was your vacation? Vacation was lovely. Uh, We had nice weather. Uh, We had very easy access to a pool. So my daughter, I legitimately, this is not embellishing. I think between a third and a half of her waking hours was spent in the pool. She loved it, which was fun. Uh, we went to the beach. We saw a spring training Blue Jays game. Um, yeah, it was it was lovely. It was very good. Uh, and I had I had a, about four clear days with absolutely no work, so that was a nice way to refresh. Awesome. Mm-hmm. How have you been? Uh, very good. Very good. Things are a little bit busy, and I've I've been doing some decision making. So this is a very uh, appropriate. Uh, topic. Mm-hmm. I also I made a, a decision yesterday uh, to go visit a, an old friend of mine who is now a published author, uh, David Muscrop, who is a uh, he got his PhD um, uh, at West and is now a prof at the University of Ottawa uh, and writes for the Washington Post and a number of other publications. Uh, he has just released a book called Too Dumb for Democracy. Uh, and and it's about political decision making. And I made the decision to go to his book, uh, book launch last night, and it was great. And I'm very proud of David, my old university friend. It's neat to see these people that you came up with doing such uh, incredible things. That's a very interesting sounding book. We should have him on the podcast. You know, I might have talked to him about that, darling. So uh, book, book <laughs> I think it's likely. Yeah, yeah, I think, and he would be uh, he would be great. But uh, really uh, dovetails so well with. Uh, what we want to talk about today. And and one thing that David harped on um, and about political decision-making and, and one thing that, you know, uh, comes up so often, especially now when it comes to decision-making is process, process, process. And people don't find process to be uh, all that flashy, I think, but it's so imperative, isn't it? Uh, yes. One of the big challenges in law and in lawyers kind of figuring out how to automate and stuff, as we've talked about, is is a reluctance to just stick with a formula each time, right? We all kind of over overvalue our independent thought, right? Sometimes and we over apply it. So yeah, that's that's an interesting one that we face in, in lots of areas in law. It's funny you say that because I was going to talk about a story uh, about trusting the process. And again, I'm sorry, everybody it comes from the sporting world, but it's such a great story about the Philadelphia 76ers. They hire a new general manager named Sam Hinkie, who basically like tears down the team and the team is terrible for a bunch of years. And he keeps telling everybody to please trust the process. This will pay off. Trust the process. This will pay off because uh, he he made he kind of sat down and thought about how can we improve this team and made a decision that wasn't based in the short term, but based in really building a long-term contender. And so what ended up happening was one of the results of this process is they got to choose, uh, you know, the first pick in, in the draft uh, one year, and they drafted this amazing player named Joel Embiid, uh, who then took on the nickname self-appointed the process. And so now he wow. and he's great and the team is great. And uh, the phrase trust the process is a huge part of the 76ers 
DNA. And, and it's, it is really core to making complex, difficult decisions is you have to build a process that you trust. And then it's easier to make a decision. And I would say it's easier to, uh, you know, the day later, months later, years later, still feel very confident in the decision you made because you built the proper process up front. It sounds so idyllic. It doesn't it? <laughs> the footnote about the same hinky, so the general manager story, he got fired before <laughs> the team got good. So... <laughs> uh, that crushes me. I know, because process is not sexy, but it does, it is important and it, and it can lead to great results. Hang on, you, you raise a very good point because I think that the other thing is that we don't see a lot of long-term decisions, strategy processes playing out because we live in this world of quarterly results and stuff for corporations. So I can completely see that where someone's like, oh, look at this guy with his weird ideas, see ya. But then they don't invite him back when he uh, when his ideas win the day. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. That's right. And also by the time the results come, it's not like people care about the result. They don't care about the months or years spent uh, getting to that result, right? Like we, we love the tasty thing in front of us. Yeah. And probably the person who was in charge at the time that the wins started to come in, got the credit, I'm guessing from right. most people who don't know right. the backstory. So, Which is the case in so many different spaces, the political space for sure. I think the proof that occurs in the professional uh, sense as well and, and potentially in our personal lives. Um, you have a great way to prepare to engage, to kind of to start the decision-making process. You make sure or do your best to make sure that you're in the right headspace. Is that right? Well, I will, I'll premise it by saying that I think uh, in the in the vein of honesty and authenticity on this podcast, I do struggle a lot with decisions when they come to me. You know, it's sort of, uh, I'm better at making decisions uh, with external facts without like not colored with my own judgment. So I have, uh, in looking at the process um, for decision making, it's different when I'm making a decision on like a file versus for my, you know, big life decisions. So my process is, um, I, I use a, a variant of the process, but anyway, for what it's worth, I think I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm any sort of expert on decision making or, um, you know, this is one, one idea that I've realized over the years, <clears throat> but I noticed that I try not to make any decisions in a bad headspace, you know? So if I'm tired like today, <laughs> or if I am, um, really stressed or just haven't had a lot of time to kind of unplug. Um, the first thing I try to do is just get myself out of the way. So make sure that there's no external variables that I'll look back on and be like, oh, I shouldn't have made that decision when I was so stressed or when I was so, you know, um, just not thinking of external considerations. So ego, right? So if you're in a decision and you're like, I have to defend myself or something like these, these kind of clues pop up that you're you're living in a in a bit of a story about how things are going to go. And those can be extremely dangerous. I mean, I think in the political sphere, we're seeing a bit of that playing out right now. But, um, you know, you have to, you have to think about what is the decision and what is my part in some of the complexities around this decision. So I'm, it's a little bit opaque to explain. But I think kind of when you're in the situation, you can realize it. Um, I think that's more of a starting point, like a prep. So get in the right headspace, get some sleep, you know, do a workout, clear your mind, sit down, and then apply the strategy that you're going to talk about. I totally feel similar 
about I'm, you know, our, our, our jobs, a large part of our job is to help other people make decisions that are consequential for them. And so intuitively we would be good decision makers in our own life and find ease in doing that. But I also struggle it when I am, when I, it's only me, right. When it's all in my head, it, I find it more difficult, um, to make decisions. And, and that's one thing actually, um, that, so there's this book that's great called Farsighted, How We Make um, the Decisions That Matter Most. It's by an author named Stephen Johnson. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, I, I'll use, I'll reference the book a little bit throughout, I think, our chat. But one thing that he talks about is when you're making complex decisions, it's very, very useful to involve other people. So, i.e., one of the reasons why a lawyer is helpful, I think, is because it's just a sounding board and a person with a different perspective. So involving other people is really important to decision making. And if that's not possible, um, you kind of want to simulate that experience by challenging yourself to see outside of yourself, to see outside of your confirmation biases, to challenge your past decisions or your assumptions. And, um, you know, this is a kind of a thread throughout a lot of our conversations, but creativity, innovation, reading on being empathetic and, and understanding an architecture of how somebody else would process something, all of these skills are really important to making good decisions. Well, and I can kind of um, confirm that from something I'm working through this week. So I'm trying to make a decision. Um, it's a related to business. And I do rely on, you know, we have a, a six member team and I, I sort of um, rely on everybody in the team for different things. And uh, one of the things I, I rely on one member of the team for the straight goods on, you know, <laughs> give your head a shake. That's the, that's the worst idea ever or good idea. Let's do it. Uh, very quick, very succinct, very, uh, he's very good at getting right to the heart of the matter. Um, but this week, what I realized in, in talking to him about a decision is that, um, you know, one of the things about me is that I have a hard time asking for help. And so when you talk about confirmation bias, um, one of the things that I will naturally tend to do is choose the decision that does not require me to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I realized that from just bouncing it off somebody else. And they said, well, why don't we, you know, ask for assistance on this point? And it's like, oh, well, there's an idea, <laughs> but it's, it's not a revolutionary idea, but it actually is useful for me for all decisions going forward because I learned something about what I consider to be a blind spot, which is just like, I'm sure everyone has their own thing. That just happens to be mine um, or one of mine, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But once you smoke those out, then in the future, you can, you can kind of be aware of them. But without having a discussion with somebody else who naturally doesn't have that problem, I would never have noticed it. I mean, I'm 42. And I've never really realized um, that that was in my thinking, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I think that's, that's something I've always heard the term confirmation bias, but until you kind of just talked about it in the scope of decision-making in this podcast, I hadn't really applied it to something like this week's situation. Look at us processing our own lives through uh podcast conversation. Wow. I'm telling you the podcast without the podcast last week, I had all these extra thoughts <laughs> with nowhere to process them. <laughs> It was quite odd. Darlene just sat in front of her microphone speaking to nobody for 45 minutes. I um, did not. That would, be, uh, <laughs> that would be a step above. The thing you raised, though, 
is important. And it's part of what Johnson outlines in this kind of framework for making complex decisions. There's a three-step framework he recommends. And I think what you're speaking about might even go to the first step. So the, the, the three-step framework is mapping, predicting, and then deciding. Uh, and he, he offers this framework as kind of a new method because everybody seems to just have the pros and cons list as their like go-to method he, he sees, um, to make decisions. So he offers this framework. The first step is actually to map out what the potential paths are to solve the problem or to make the decision. And part of that is building a menu of options. So it's easy to jump to stage three, or even if you're a little bit advanced, stage two. But the first step is actually saying, okay, I have this decision to make. What are my options to, you know, what what roads can I go down here to get to the result that I want? And ultimately mapping is about, okay, let's sit down, clear mind as you've outlined. What are the potential paths? What are the menu of options that I have? Um, and then within that menu of options, you start to look at all the variables of the decision through each menu. So an easy way to kind of understand this is, let's say that you're deciding, you know, um, this is a millennial <laughs> uh, potential issue, but it's like, okay, do I stay in the city or and rent, or do I move out of the city uh, and buy a house, right? And it seems like uh, that's just a decision that you're making one or the other, but the decision has a bunch of variables to it. And so what you have to identify the variables um, and then channel those variables through your options, right? So if the two options are stay or go, uh, then you're going to look at what's education like in each place. What is what's my commute like? What's you know, and all these variables channel them through those mapped pathways, and then you're going to have a more fulsome idea uh, of of what each option truly looks like because you understand the variables as well. Uh, what do you think about that? I think it sounds good. I think um, it sounds very process driven. I'm going to use. I'm going to start with this mapping. Just I do the it. process. <laughs> I do it loosely, I suppose. Like in, in my mind, I have a map, but do I write it out and put it down on paper? Probably, probably not. Usually, I mean, when you write a memo for a client recommending options, that's a little bit of a map. You have to kind of mind map that out. But for my own decisions in my personal life, I don't. Yeah, it's an interesting way to go about it. I like this too because it's so, especially in like in. I remember, for example when somebody handed me and my wife a sleep plan for our daughter when she was four months old. And it was so helpful because it was a framework that uh, just guided us. And no longer do we have to have a conversation about how we were going to sleep train. It was just about implementing. And in, in this sort of way, I really like the idea of using this in our in personal lives because it's like, okay, we have this big decision to make. Uh, now you can actually be like, okay, in our process for making the decision is just by following this, these steps and building out this, this menu or map and then following it through. And I think that I'm personally kind of excited about using this framework for the next decision I have to make in, in any sense, because it takes the burden off of you to first decide on how, right? The how's taken care of. And now it's just about implementation, which I think is exciting. Well, plus it takes out some of the mental load, which we're always trying to do on this podcast, but, Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the worst things about decision-making for me are, and I don't know if this is a law school thing or a, or a me thing, but I will, I will litigate the issue a thousand times in my own brain. Mm-hmm. You know, I would like to litigate it once in my own brain, That's it. <laughs> maybe twice, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe once from each side. 
but I don't, I don't think that it's at all productive to have on in a, in a window, one of my windows open in my brain, this uh, back and forthing with myself, which is, you know, completely preventable with the use of a better process. So yeah, this is, this is really good. It's good. So let's move on to stage two. Uh, I wish we had the podcast on Monday. <laughs> so I could have well, saved a couple if hours. If I wasn't selfish and away on vacation, we would have talked about this last week. It would have helped you for Monday. Oh, well. oh my gosh. No, what no, no. This is the perfect timing with that, with that context. Yeah. Okay. So predicting. Um, so you have your paths, right? You, you've set up your paths through the mapping process. Uh, now what you do is predict where each designated path would lead and not just like, the day after you make the decision, but you're looking at short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And, and so um, the, one of the most exciting things about the prediction phase that I found is that this is where, as I indicated before, you want to have either a person with diverse interests or a group with diverse knowledge to help in the prediction stage. So huh. little things that, like, that Johnson outlines is that like the best predictors generally the best forecasters, all these people uh, in the world are people with diverse interests, largely that read a lot and read fiction a lot. Uh, and, and this kind of multi interest and ability to empathize and to be creative leads to better predictive results. Um, Interesting. Why fiction? I think, well, from what he says basically is it's again, it's about that architecture architecture of empathy in a lot of ways, because reading about another person's experience builds that muscle. So -hmm. then when you're making a decision and you're, again, challenging your own biases, you can start to make the decision outside of yourself, as you indicated, is is a useful exercise uh, and see it more objectively. Um, And so it's it's about reading fiction is is about kind of like, yeah, building that muscle of looking outside of yourself and um, seeing perspectives that you otherwise wouldn't. Well, and isn't that partly what we're trying to do on this podcast too? Like when I was at a, an innovation conference a couple of weeks ago and one of the speakers recommended this particular uh, blog that is sort of uh, well known in the industry, I guess. And when I went in he basically said, I read this every day. And I thought, okay, let me go look and see what that is. And then I realized that with the readership, that's probably a lot of people reading the same thoughts every day. And I kind of realized, hmm, I see these thoughts a lot throughout uh, the internet. Um, and for me, it I don't want to read the same thing that everyone else is reading. I want to read a whole bunch of different things mm-hmm. from across the spectrum of, you know, from self-help to business books, to biographies, to the news, to um, following industries other than law. And therein for me is the answer. And that's that's what he's talking about, maybe. But fiction I read some fiction, but not as much as just general information absorption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the same. And, and so it's about this, this predictive stage. And one of the reasons why fiction is so important is because this predictive stage is about imagining how your paths or your, mm-hmm. you know, your options for decisions will lead to a disaster. <laughs> like it's maybe, maybe you could phrase that probably more positively, but it ultimately is okay. So I have this mapped, these mapped paths how will this go seeing it all the way through and and you're seeing and as you do that you are starting to challenge assumptions imagine alternative scenarios look for your blind spots um and a useful way to do this this is like oh i love this uh i love this method is um what is called like building a red team where you actually task people 
at each step to show you why that is going to fail or to point out the the weaknesses in each stage of um, that path. And so ultimately what you continually have is someone to to challenge you to make sure that you're not, you know, everybody's not engaging in groupthink to make sure that your blind spots are actually being considered. And, and really what that does is it's, it's kind of a simulation. You could also build a simulation yourself in a different way, but it starts to take you, you know, you have all these paths that you can choose. You have all these like stages on each path. And then all of a sudden you, and if you challenge them all properly, you're building a pretty good simulation that, that basically allows you to take in all the all the pros and cons uh, and make a decision that you're confident. So is there a green team talking about the upside? I think ultimately you are the green team, right? Because you, if you're mm-hmm. advocating more or less for your paths and to say, okay, if I do this, then, you know, we're going to wind up here, we're going to wind up here, and it's real rosy. I think that that's like kind of like the 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 task of the person who's who's making the decision regarding the process is just, you know, you're walking through the, the ideal in each scenario. Uh, and the I don't team. know. I might, I might have a, in the world of law, I wonder about that because I think something I encounter a lot um, just in uh, hearing responses to innovative uh, ways of doing things and just watching the discussion play out. Um, that's what lawyers like to do is issue spot and mm-hmm. crush ideas in their nascence. <laughs> You know, um, and I think that we as a profession can get better at just um, doing a different kind of issue spotting. Like for me, it's sort of uh, what I really have been trying to reorient my thinking to do is even in times of difficulty, say like, what's the opportunity here? What's the opportunity? What am I missing by focusing on what could go wrong? Um, and that to me is something that we as a profession, I think maybe there are some lawyers who do that very, very well. I just, I'm just speaking in, on, in generalities, but um, I would, from in my own life, that's something that I'm trying to do, um, is to focus on what could go right, as opposed to always the catastrophizing approach. So I'm, I'm sure that that's another piece of what he talks about in the book. Um, but that for me is something that it would be because the thing is, I don't want to emerge from a decision process ever with uh, the person who's trying to make the decision having you know, being tasked with doing the hard thing, because sometimes the hard thing to do is the thing that has the biggest payoff, but also has the most obvious risks and downsides. You know, like, Mm -hmm. there are lots of decisions that would never have been made in business, if people were focused on this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. Um, something that my husband and I talk about a lot is that the, uh, the guy who built the Honda, the original Honda, do you know the story of that, the guy who started Honda? He basically built one factory, which burnt down (laughs) to build motorcycles. He built a second factory, which burnt down. And one would think he would give up, but he did not. He built a third factory. And, you know, the story, I guess, is clear from there that he was very successful. Um, But I just, I kind of think that having someone constantly telling you what could go wrong, that's that's what I don't, me personally, I do not want that. I want that to be a voice, but I would have like a red team and a spectacular opportunity commentator, right? Whose job it was to think of the best absolute possible thing that could happen from this scenario Mm -hmm. and then, then balance them both. Cause if the big payoff isn't even worth the, you know, when you balance the two, if they don't make sense, then fine. But 
anyway, does that make sense? Or is that just my own personal? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I think it makes sense. I think that the, the takeaway here is that there needs to be a red team and there needs to be a quote unquote green team. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes, you know, you might have a client that's so risk adverse that they're by de facto their own red team, you know, yes. <laughs> uh, or you might yes. have a client that is just so comfortable with risk that they are de facto, they're the biggest green team in the world. And then you want to make sure that as you're outlining the options, you are issue spotting and you're saying, here's the issue here. And ultimately though, there's going to be one path that has less red. Right. right. And that's depending on what the, the decision makers desire is that might be the desired path or the, de- or you might have somebody who's more comfortable with risk that you've out yeah, yeah, here's all the red, but the payoff is so great that maybe that's still the path selected, but at least you have anticipated the points at which there are risks and you can solve for those or at least mitigate those risks. Um, you know, as th- once you decide on that path, you can then start to clean up those red issues. So, um, you know, I think the thing that I really like about this, it's not about saying, don't, don't always take the greenest path, but it's about, it's about understanding the risks inherent and rewards inherent, as you're pointing out, in each path. And that gives you a really comprehensive picture, right? Um, yeah. Um, on what to get up to. And one of the things that um, Johnson talks about in his book, it's like in, in all the interviews he's done with it, uh, is the process of deciding uh, whether to proceed with the mission to uh, to kill Osama bin Laden, which was a nine-month de- decision-making process. And that was everything. The decision-making process was everything from like, is, is Osama bin Laden actually the person in this compound? And, and if so, how do we achieve what we want to do? So there's a number of paths. Um, one and then as they started to see the issues with each path they started to proactively solve for those issues so that if you know their disaster scenario arose they already had a solution and so one example was um they saw a problem with well we're going into pakistan's airspace uh without their consent so our so they might react by thinking that we're um you know breaching their sovereignty and there's a there was a trade route that they needed through that area, uh, and so they thought, okay, they might close off that trade route. So months before the the mission went forward, they built a different trade route. So this is like basically what I'm getting at here is that pointing out the the flaws or the risks doesn't mean that that's going to end that path. It just means mm-hmm. that you then can help to proactively solve for the flaw before potentially before it even arises well that's a really good point and something that i was focused on this week is um you know what's a difficulty and what's an obstacle and i think so many so much of the problem sometimes is that we call something an obstacle meaning it's actually like a a barrier or a something that you can't get past you know it's something in your path that that stops something versus a difficulty or a challenge to be overcome or addressed right and depending, like we are in charge of making that definition often. I mean, in, in the American government case, I guess they've got unlimited resources to do something like build a new trade route. So, but sometimes we assume we don't have the resources to get over an obstacle. Whereas instead, I think some of the most successful entrepreneurs, if you follow their journey, they're certainly not without giant obstacles and crazy challenges. 
Um, it's just that they they roll with them and they they do fix them. So that's that's really interesting. So they look at the trade route. They don't say, oh, we can't do it. It would block the trade route. They say, hmm, how are we going to deal with that trade route? I guess we have to build a new one, <laughs> right? I love that, really. I mean, as a as a strategy. He has a great quote. Again, this is Johnson. And that kind of wraps it all up really well, I think, the, the predictive stage. He says, by forcing yourself to imagine scenarios where the decision turned out to be a disastrous one, you can think your way around those blind spots and that false sense of confidence. Love that. Because <sighs> what it means is that you actually go into a decision eyes wide open and you're not going, you should, there's, it's far less likely you'll be surprised day one after decision, months after decision, years after decision. Every decision has its downside, right? But at least if you follow this process and really dive into it, when the downside comes, you'll either have solved for it or accepted it and prepared for it. I think that there is maybe a different decision-making structure um, or maybe an added an addition to this structure, which is just to say, um, you know, some level of getting confident with with higher level risks or with different level risks or with this idea that some things can't be planned for, right? Because I am, I think it is a fallacy to think that there are plans and they work out and there are no curveballs, so to speak. Um, so I think there's like this, there's a fine line between we can plan everything versus we can use a process and we can try to mix. And, and this is sort of my approach always is to mix in the emotional, um, personal with the kind of empirical, if that makes sense, like scientific, scientific planning meets acceptance of whatever comes and, you know, the confidence and the wisdom to deal with, with those things when they arise. Hard to explain. Perhaps why that book doesn't exist yet. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't. We don't know. What it is. Well, and listen, I don't think that I don't think that anybody would think that this process is going to, you know, issue spot a hundred percent of the issues that come your way, right? Like there'll always be on you know, things that you don't expect. Um, but at least you know, versus doing a pros cons list or just sitting in a room without a framework and just being like, what about this one? What about this? What if we do this? You know, it's more likely that you will, you know, you're, you're more likely to find the downfalls if you actually dive in to each path, each variable in each path, build a red team, understand, you know, have a diverse group. If you have all these things, you're more likely to at, at least catch the, the most obvious and potentially, you know, the, uh, the most impactful um, problems. Uh, yes, and having a diverse group is huge because that that's basically what what I'm raising in this discussion, right? Is just sort of like, well, how would someone who hasn't had that particular experience hear that? You know, mm -hmm. how would someone hear that feedback? Because if they're not used to having their decisions supported, they might hear that feedback as a as a no in a way that a more confident person would hear it as a who cares mm -hmm. we're we're right. doing this. Right. So I think that's that's the final kicker actually. Um, is that if if you're going to use that process, you have to kind of add in the the diverse voices, and then then it could could work and control for some of that stuff a bit better. That's good. Yeah. I like it. And then the last thing is deciding, and it, and what I like about this uh, as well is it, it's not about you're a computer or a robot, so just follow and you know choose the obvious quote unquote best path. Uh, it's now use your gut thinking. Right now, employ your intuition. 
now employ all the stuff that has made you, you know, potentially a successful uh, person in decision-making or the things that are important in your relationship, you know, employ all those things at this point um, with the better information that you have. So it's, it, it's, this is like, it's still employ your human element, still, you know, employ whatever emotional thing, things you think are actually legitimately meant to be exist in your decision-making process. So this is, you know, the final stage instead of the first stage. Now you have rich information that you can have a more comprehensive picture. Now employ those tools that have always led you or, or often led you to making good calls. Hmm. As the final layer. <clears throat> that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's it. Look at my resistance to process. It's really not, <laughs> it's really not a resistance to process. It's just that I think that... Um, I always have to look at processes and see about, uh, you know, do they work and do they need a slight modification? And maybe this one doesn't, I will try it on the next decision that I have to make. And then I will uh, report back or I will put you on my red or green team. And then you will know that I'm trying to do it. This is really interesting. Thank you for reading that book and uh, bringing it up. My pleasure. Okay, we will go to a quick edit and then be back with our goods and gripes. They're back, everybody. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Inter Alia, visit the website. That's spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support. Gripes are things that annoy us. First, Darlene, why have we brought back our gripes? Well, I think it's fair to say they were brought back by popular demand, right? I guess so. I, I have received <laughs> feedback. <laughs> I have received uh, multiple requests to bring back the grapes. I have also received direct messages saying, what happened to grapes? And the other one said, why are there no grapes? Please bring back the grapes. So that's funny because we had taken out the grapes in tribute to Mark Sakamoto, our guest uh, earlier this year, who made the very good point that here in Canada, we have very little to gripe about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that was, uh, I think it's been good to focus on them. And I think I'm glad we did that. But, uh, you know, they are fun and we, we will keep them light and they are not, uh, they're usually lawyer related and maybe a bit nerdy. So um, I've got a very nerdy one today. To I have nerdy ones too. Okay, go well, ahead. You go, no, you go first. Okay. So my good, I'll start with my good, which is also highly nerdy. So I have been finding that following the politics, um, both uh, in Canada and south of the border over the past few weeks has been very um, trying. So I've been finding that I try to turn off at the end of the day from from work thinking and I'm looking for something just mindless, but not not gory and a crime drama. And, you know, I'm always talking on this podcast about trying to look for just positive media. And it's very hard to find. This week, though, on Netflix, I found all the old episodes of Jeopardy. 
Yeah. Which was like nerd Christmas because <laughs> suddenly I'm like, I realize I don't need the new episodes of Jeopardy and I can't get those episodes because I don't have cable or a television with cable. Um, and so this is great. So I was able to just kind of watch 20 minutes of Jeopardy and think trivia and not read about anything. And it was really good. It was a, that was a good, I felt very happy. I was a huge Jeopardy fan. And even in one of my years off, I was going to go and audition for Jeopardy, <laughs> do a road trip really? and audition for Jeopardy. Did not do it, but, uh, and nor would I have probably gotten on the show. I mean, the people on there now are just beyond, like they're so talented yeah. um, and they are trivia masters. So anyway, I love that show. Glad to have found it on Netflix. Cool. Should I do my gripe or do you do your good? I'll do my good and then we'll both gripe it up together. Okay. Um, my good is brought to you by Chief Justice Beth Walker. She's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. Um, she's posted on Twitter a list of words that she refuses to include in her opinions. Uh, and the, and <laughs> are you laughing? Cause this is so nerdy. Um, <laughs> it's pretty nerdy. And, and, the, and, the, and the plain spoken word that replaces it, um, which I, which is great. So she is no longer saying like here under or instant case or notwithstanding, and is actually just writing her opinions. So they're accessible. Um, you can find her. It's at Beth. W-A-L-K-R on Twitter if you'd like to take a look at that list and we'll put it in our notes. I was just deleting a whole bunch of heretofores and now therefores in an agreement last night. It is. So yeah, herein and hereby, it's terrible. And no one's perfect, but it's good. She has a list. We should make our own lists and and, and try to work on always uh, making our stuff more accessible, I think. So uh, great. What is your gripe, Darlene? It's been, you've had months to come up with one. I've had months, but this one, it just, I don't know. Do you, I need to see if anyone else agrees. When I see all caps, when, when I get a oh, markup no, back from the other side, no. all the comments are all caps. Is that not yelling? This is my gripe. To me, it feels like someone is yelling. I think it depends. It depends on where. And, and, and some inside uh, knowledge here. I made a document <laughs> for a shared client. <laughs> And it was meant to be a summary, a plain spoken summary of a deal. And in my headings, I use capitals. And that's me to change. <laughs> now, I, if you look at, in really the design world, I have my design book, as we've spoken about in previous episodes. I, I try to note design. Um, it's very common in advertising, video, so on. Watch Netflix next time uh, you're up. Capital titles are, are very common to be used. So that's my position <laughs> on our disagreement. Okay, titles, I will give you that mm-hmm. one. I will give you titles. But if you send your comments to the, another lawyer and you put them in all caps throughout the document, no? Very weird. To me, that just feels like someone's yelling. It just feels needlessly confrontational. <laughs> that's my that's gripe. Odd. Yeah, you don't I, think so? I would have griped about that just because it's like, it's weird. I wouldn't appreciate that. I, yeah, I'm with you. I, I agree. I'd see you see it more often. Like sometimes, if someone provides comments in an email too, they will separate their comments oh, yeah. by using all caps. Which to me is was yeah. we needed to do that in the days before you could like change fonts yeah. in emails because that was a thing. Yeah. Like in the beginning, you couldn't change the fonts, so or highlight yeah. that didn't exist as a feature. Yeah. But you could always use square brackets and note or <laughs> square bracket response something. I've never understood the caps. Um, you know. 
maybe anyway that's all we're your turn man, we're getting so uh drafty we're so gripes because i'm my, my gripe this i might have referenced oxford commas before but i'm gonna bring it back yes. and so kudos to our former prime minister stephen harper he tweeted on international women's day but his tweet really pointed out the importance of an oxford comma and my gripe is that he did not use one uh so he says happy international women's day today and every day, may we honor the women and girls in our lives, period. Okay, here, here's the subject sentence. Special mention to at Lorraine Harper, comma, my mother and daughter. <laughs> this is so funny. The Oxford comma causes you extreme stress. Well, because this reads... You need to meet my friend Maggie. You guys could have a good This Oxford reads like his off. wife is his mother and daughter. Right. Special mention to Lorraine Harper, comma, my mother and daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if he would have said Lorraine Harper, comma, my mother, comma, and daughter. Did you tweet him? uh, No, I'm not. I'm not going to call out her. It's not your thing. That's okay. That's probably best. Wow. Okay. These are some good gripes. Aren't you glad we brought these back? Yes. We need these. We need to like let off steam by having these uh, Oxford comma and uh, all caps gripes. That's right. The other, I have one more good, uh, and this is self-indulgent, but uh, there was a decision, an interesting uh, copyright decision that came out in the US that involved Dr. Seuss uh, and, and fair use, which rhymes. Uh, and uh, and I, I, uh, it was a perfect opportunity to make a Dr. Seuss type uh, joke on Twitter, which I did. Um, you did. How did I miss this? I'll have to check. Oh, in. the judgments will, you'll win. Congratulations. Today is your day. You won the decision. Fair use cleared the way. <laughs> <laughs> good one. Thank you. Really good. Thanks so much. Awesome. Yeah. Spoken like a true dad who spends some time with those I books. So much. I love Dr. Seuss books. I love them. Did you love them as a kid, no. though? My theory is parents love Dr. Seuss and kids don't. Mm. That's my, my daughter theory. loves. Yeah. No, my daughter loves Dr. Seuss. She likes it a lot. Oh, she does. Okay. Might just be my kids. It is nonsense. Um, I like all of the places you'll go yeah. with that book. And I like ABC. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. They're good. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk next week. We will. Uh, thanks for the great chat. Thank you. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm back, baby. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.